Lord have mercy, look at how the time And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And today I have with me a guest uh, by the name of Michael Wexler. Hello, sir. Good morning, John. We're talking by, by uh, messenger video. You are also an American in Norway. You poor thing. You look like you need a hug. I need a hug. Can you hug me? Oh, we all need <laughs> hugs at this time. Uh, which is why I'm so upset with the whole idea of social distancing. What is I your opinion on so that? Wrong. I think it's so wrong. I've written to the Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. Uh, we need more social contact, especially in these times. Okay, but what, what about the medicinal? What about the medicinal aspect of social distancing in that it's supposed to help slow down the spread of this virus? The correct term would be physical distancing. Aha, uh -huh, I see. There is a distinction there. So you make that distinction because we need to be able to reach out to each other and maintain connection with each other socially. <laughs> But we have to do that at a physical distance. So I've been on a campaign against the, the concept of social distancing. Okay, because I saw you had written a comment, and, and forgive me for not reading the entire post that you made, but I saw something where you had written about being against social distancing, and I thought, oh my gosh, does Michael not think of the medicinal... Uh, aspects of distancing, but okay, you're differentiating between social distancing and physical distance. Now I get it, and I can agree with you. I agree with you. Now I'm, I'm, we're, I'm on your side. <laughs> I'm not going to take up my semi-automatic and march into the, the chambers <laughs> of the Michigan legislature. Michael, Michael do you have, do you have a semi-automatic here in Norway? <laughs> I have shot a gun once in my life. Okay, uh, at a at a girlfriend in Wisconsin's house and her brother was so impressed. The first skeet shot I took, I hit the clay pigeon and that was the last one I, I hit. And never, and never shot a gun since then. Never shot a gun since wow, then. Wow. Okay. Now, and, you know, they, they have very strict laws. Um, you know, I joked with you and said, do you have, and asked, do you have a uh, semi-automatic here in, in Norway, those are almost non-existent here in Norway. They're very strict about the gun uh, possession of a gun. Good thing uh, or bad I, thing? I think that's a very good thing. Have you seen what Canada just did? Yes. After their first mass shooting and their Trudeau, ban. yeah. Uh, and and it is sickening to watch these people out protesting with guns. Just think, John, if it was you and a couple of your friends who went into the Michigan legislature with semi-automatics, do you think they just polite you, politely open the doors for you? Well, actually, they probably watch? would, because you said me and my friends, all my friends are white. There are no black people here in Norway. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know that feeling, too. <laughs> and I think we'll talk about that, because I know that feeling to be one of a kind. Yes, we have a we have some common ground on that issue right there. We definitely have to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I joke I joke a lot about Norway and about Norwegian people, and but but for the most part, I love it here. So I just want to say that I do joke harshly on them, but it's I joke because I love. Well, we we all know how the Norwegians always ask us 
if if we are feeling comfortable here. <laughs> so they just do have. And my reply usually is, would you like a Norwegian answer? Which is, <laughs> it's just okay. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Or I say, well, would you like an American answer? Well, you know, I, I can I, I tell people, I don't know, how do I put this? I'm very grounded in my Americanness, my American identity. So the only answer I can give people to that question or any question is an American answer. But sometimes they don't like it. You know, I, I tell them, you know, everything is, you know, I'm, I'm doing well here. You know, my family, my wife and kids, they're provided for. We're doing great. But, and then when I come with that but, you know, and again, and they ask that question. So they should expect they should expect an answer. And sometimes they get a little bent out of shape when I give them that honest answer. Well, it, it's it's somewhat similar to we Americans yeah. who have gotten into the habit of saying, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, uh, And they all here want you to say, have a nice day. Well, they ask, how is your day going? And I said, you want the Norwegian answer? <laughs> you want the American answer? <laughs> Uh, because I have some days that aren't so great, but for the most, I have accepted my life here in Norway. Yeah. I am thankful. Yeah. If I, I have had so many health problems over the years since I've been here, 27 years it was in March, uh, I would have gone bankrupt several times over, lost my house, been on the street. Uh, in the States, unless I had the most wonderful insurance coverage. I tell you, the social net that we can fall into here in Norway is a beautiful thing. And it's not this big, scary socialist monster that a lot of people back home will have it to be. Uh, yes, we pay our taxes here, but I don't feel, I personally don't notice that I pay significantly more in taxes here than I did back home. I think the difference is, is that we're getting what we pay for here. Whereas in the States, a lot of our tax money goes to that big slush fund and God knows what they do with it, but they're certainly not giving the people the services that they're paying for. That's for sure. Totally agree with that. We, we, we when people talk about, oh, but the taxes are so high there, said, yes, but we get something for it. And uh, I have my brother who is suffering from COVID-19 now, yeah. and his sick pay has run out, even though he's working for a major international health organization. And I asked, well, how are you surviving? And he said, well, I'm supposed to get 60% of my salary now as emergency sick time. Okay. But then he tells me, but they made a mistake and they're paying me 160%. Oh so he got a raise. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's told human resources, hey, uh, you guys have made a mistake. I'm getting too much money. But they haven't done anything yet. Well, I hope he's putting that money aside because they're going to take, take it back eventually. Or dock his, dock his future earnings or something. So hopefully he's, he's also... But he is working 40, 40 hours a week. Okay, yeah. And from his home, running meetings and posting right. and writing articles. Yeah, I, I never, I, I will never say, or I am not able to say that Norway, living in Norway is better than living back home in the States. I can't say that. Um, however, there are certain aspects of living here in Norway that are much better 
than 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 living back at home. And one of them is, you know, the the, the medical care and the safety net that we have within that medical medical care system the operations i've had which aren't even they pale in comparison to what you've been through with medical procedures i've had a whole series of operations on my shoulder i know that if i had this same procedure done back home in the states i'd be either bankrupt or jobless or both uh and that's just not that's nothing to worry about over here no and uh i remember i i, I received a kidney transplant my oldest son donated his kidney to me back in 2009. Uh, and I didn't see a bill. I didn't have to pay for anything. They put me up in a hotel for 10 weeks right next across from the hospital. So I could maintain contact with the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and one night I lay awake without being able to sleep. So I wrote a letter in my head. To Barack Obama, who was president at the time, was trying to pass Obamacare. Yeah. And, and, and I said, well, look, I've, I've just had an operation. I'm going to be laid up for a year. I'm going to get my full salary. I haven't seen a bill from the hospital. And, and it's just fantastic. So yeah. if there's anything I can do, you can use my story when you're trying to push health, re health yeah. reform yeah. in the USA. Yeah. But I kind of slipped up at the end of my letter because I told him I would be staying in a hotel and he was coming to Oslo and I could have gotten an extra bed in my hotel room for only 300 krona and hotel rooms cost quite a bit in Oslo. So I said if he wanted while well, he came to pick up his prize, he could stay with me. <laughs> never, never heard back. I never heard back from him. Well, <laughs> doggone it, Barack. <laughs> Established that I basically was not a total kook because I have had dinner with the vice president of the United States who did become president, Gerald Ford. Huh. My brother has had tons of meeting when Clinton was president with Clinton. Okay. So I tried to establish, I'm not a kook. <laughs> but I don't know if the Secret Service would want him to have spent the spend the night with you. <laughs> in, my, in my hotel room by the hospital. <laughs> you know, Barack Obama seems to be a pretty down to earth guy, but maybe the maybe he has his limits. Yeah, would have been interesting. <laughs> now I I'm sitting here in. in a, <clears throat> There's not. I, I joked earlier. I said there's not a lot of black guys. Uh, I think I said there's no black guys here in Norway. Yeah. There's very, there's very few. There are very few black Americans. I actually have not met face to face with a single black American. I've only met face to face with just a handful of Americans. Period. And I always get a joy. I, I, I enjoy talking with my fellow Americans here. It just it makes me feel more. Uh, as if I'm, you know, it kind of satisfies, it kind of cures that homesickness for me just to talk to another American. And I have to say one thing that stands out about you is your accent. You can't get, <laughs> you cannot get much more American than a Brooklyn act, Brooklyn, correct? Oh. You're Br Brooklyn, no. right? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Did I insult you? This is a Bronx accent. This is a Bronx, I'm sorry. Bronx. Bronx. <laughs> and, uh, Them's fighting words. <laughs> when, I, when I have written uh, applying for jobs here in Norway, 
Yeah. I explained to them that I speak Norwegian with a Bronx accent. Norwegian with a Bronx accent. <laughs> and here in Norway, for many of the people who don't know, there are lots of what they call dialects, accents yeah. from all parts of the country. Yeah. I'm good at telling when there's a different accent. I can't place exactly where it's from. But I say you have so many different accents. My accent is rather unique. Yes. And uh, if you want to understand my Norwegian, basically, you can understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Norwegian with a Bronx accent. Yeah, sorry about that. I said Brooklyn, but Br Bronx. And you, and you oh, did tell me before, oh. you did tell me before it was Bronx and not Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah th those are fighting words where I come from. <laughs> I've, got, I've got two buddies who can come, who, who collect money for me, uh, Vito and Tony. Oh. And I could always send them <laughs> out. Send them. Yeah. They, they, they really like to go after the knees. <laughs> oh, gosh. And I got healthy knees so far. Don't do the knees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, you... Uh, call them off. Call them. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I take it back. It was not a Brooklyn accent I heard. It was a Bronx accent. Yeah. Um, now, how... Uh, you, you have a... Yeah, I traveled my path, you know, from rural Ohio to the Chicago suburbs, to Norway. Trace your path from the Bronx to Norway. How did that happen? How did you meet your wife? Well, um, after college and after a year of law school, and I dropped out from that, and then I started working with people. And then I wound up moving back in with my mother in my 20s in back in new york and i i was working three different jobs i was coaching sports on the weekend with rich kids i was working in the south bronx with the poorest kids in the school system teaching them reading uh, and i was also working for an international peace organization as a receptionist uh i saved money by living with my mom and i decided to take my trip to to Europe. Just for pleasure. Uh, just for pleasure, just to experience just your... for adventure. I needed an adventure in my life. I, had, I joined an international peace and friendship organization. I actually went to be interviewed to be a member of this organization that allows people to stay uh, in other people's homes all around the world for free. Okay. I'll talk about that a little bit later on, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so I joined, I went in for a one hour interview and after three hour, after three hours, I not only was a member of the organization, but I also received the title as the assistant coordinator for Greece. Oh, wow. Because I was, I was heading to Greece and the organization had disappeared under the dictatorship in Greece and they were trying to restart it. And the person who interviewed me, who was a very famous person in this organization, thought I could be a good person to try to recruit Greeks back into the organization. Okay. Though I spoke no Greek. Um, and Greek, so I, Greek with a Bronx to, accent. That, that would yeah, be something. No, I don't speak Greek at all. <laughs> I learned to say, thank you, excuse me, and so forth. Where's the toilet? Uh, but uh, the important things. Uh, so I took off on my trip. I left the 1st of September. Uh, and 
my friends back in New York asked me, when are you coming back? And so help me, honest truth, I, the answer that I gave constantly, I just don't know. I might meet a nice Norwegian blonde by a nice Norwegian fjord and settle down for a bit. Yeah. I don't know if I'm a witch uh, <laughs> or, or what, or a, lucky. A, a warlock, but uh, my host in this organization in Bergen, Norway, uh, was a woman and, and her roommate. And things happened pretty quickly. And I tried to check the rule book of the organization. Are you allowed to sleep with your host? <laughs> uh, and I didn't see anything in that. Uh, and, Full steam ahead. <laughs> and so I, you're supposed to, in the organization, spend two nights with your host, minimum and, and, and maximum. And you did that, I'm assuming. Uh, and on the 30th of April, just a couple days ago, we, I have now spent 39 years married to my host that I met back in 1979. 39 years. Congratulations. 39 years. I've got 19. I got four grandchildren. I've got 19 years with my Snoop. Uh, you're a young man. I'm just a baby. You got time to go. I'm just a baby. <laughs> so, uh, so you come to, so you come to Norway. Um, how it's one thing to visit Norway or it's one thing to come here to work, you know, if you're doing some work with the organization, that organization, but it's another thing to move here. How was that experience for you? Was it challenging? Was there any fear involved? Tell me about that. Uh, to, yeah, I was scared shitless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what happened is I met my wife, very early in my trip, so I continued my trip. Okay. But I kept coming back. So in my original plan, I was going to spend Christmas time in Egypt okay. to see how the Coptic Christians celebrated Christmas. Interesting, yeah. Instead, I wound up in rural farm area, Norway, wasn't prepared exactly for that, but then I got to meet the family. Okay. Uh, but then I left again and continued, made it down to Israel, made it through lots of other countries, came back and uh, traveled with her. And we decided, yeah, we're gonna, we were going to try to make it. Yeah. I went back to the States, investigated some, some universities where I could have received a master's degree. Uh, where my wife could maybe study music therapy because she was into that at the time. Uh, and uh, we were not married yet. But then I decided I would try her country. Yeah. And I moved here and we lived, uh, we lived in Bergen, actually on the island of Askoy, yeah. just outside of Bergen. Yeah. Before there was a bridge there, had to commute by ferry. By ferry, yeah. Wonderful. Um, we got married back here, uh, in her hometown. Her mother had arranged for the church, but my mother was going to come. And I said, she doesn't want to see me married in the church. So we went to the justice. Because, of the peace. because, 
because because of the wonderful things he does. Um, <laughs> because I'm not of the Christian pers persuasion. You, you, I am Jewish. You are a Jew from the Bronx living in Norway. That right there is yeah. a story in itself. Well, we can get to that. We will, yeah, we'll get to that. But my wife at first said she could never think of moving to America, but then because of love, she decided she would move with me. We lived 12 years in Minnesota, got my master's degree, started my professional career. Uh, and then her mother had died uh, and uh, her father was alone, although he had his son and his, his, his other daughter nearby, but he was alone and he developed cancer. Okay, yeah. And my wife was here for a summer, as often was with with the with our kids. And she said, "Hey, there's a job opening up near here that might be suitable for you." I never thought, since I made my living with my mouth, <laughs> and I could hardly speak Norwegian, that I could get a job with my mouth. But they opened an institution for girls who were sexually abused. Yeah. And that was what I was working a lot with in the United, in Minnesota. And I applied for a job as the director of the place, but didn't get it. Because, for, because your ba your background is is uh, within psychology, correct? No, heaven forbid. Uh, <laughs> I have a master's degree in social work. Social work, social work. Yes. And in the state of Minnesota, the license I have is a better license than a psychologist license. Okay. And I have taught psychology students at the master's level. Okay. And I've hired and fired psychologists. Okay. But that's not accepted here in Norway. Right. Well, tell me about However, it. <laughs> this job was here. Her father was sick. And I wanted to give him time with his daughter, with his grandchildren. So we moved in with him. Uh, try tried to sell our house in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. That fell through. I had to send mortgage payments back to the states Oof. from here. That wasn't fun. That is not a good. Oh, that's not a good situation. No. Eventually, it got sold. We had a Norwegian American who who helped sell it for us. Uh, but. Um, so all my dreams of saving money by moving in with my father-in-law, they went down the drain. <laughs> um, but I, I got offered a job at this institution. They first didn't know exactly what I was, so they called me a, a Miua Beta. Because that, uh, because that is a huge problem with a lot of Americans in Norway, myself included. Uh, that whole process of getting your educational background officially recognized here in Norway, it is a, it's a, it's a pretty stony and steep path that you've got to walk in order to get that in place. Um, there's some highly educated people. There's some people with a lot of work experience, myself included, who at times experience a severe being at a severe disadvantage here in Norway because that background will not be recognized. It's not, uh, they don't care what kind of education you had. If it's not a Norwegian education, it kind of gets thrown out the window. I, I have fought and lost and given up the fight with no coot, 
that acknowledges education. Yeah, no kit. Yeah, that is a place that 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 recognizes. You know, that that gives a thumbs up for accredited uh, um, education in other countries, and, and that's a long process. And you can go through that long process to 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 ha- you know and, and have no results. In the end, they give you a uh, an answer saying that nope, your education isn't good enough. They they acknowledge I have enough credit hours for a master's degree, but in my program, we were not required to write a dissertation. Uh-huh. We were very practical-oriented, so I had field work two days a week for my two years of my master's program, working in child protection and working at a child guidance center. Yeah, yeah. But practical experience doesn't help because in Norway, they would prefer I had written a they want the paperwork. dissertation about rats running through a maze <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. So I had toyed with the idea of writing one later on in life, but I gave up that idea. So I've applied. I could wallpaper my house with all the applications with right. jobs. Right. I, I feel bad for many of the young people I see who move here because of love and they don't have the education and they don't accept it and they are stuck doing menial work. Uh, <laughs> me, when I came, I had to have a, uh, and this was 27 years ago, I had to have a, a work contract, which I had at this institution to be the fog consulant the, and Eventually, what is fog consonant? How would that translate into English? That's a hard one. For more, like a, like a um, con- consultant, educational uh, consult, or a, yeah, yeah, expert. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I've always had a hard time translating that. That is a difficult one to translate. Uh, and then uh, they saw what I could do, and they said, "Wait, you you shouldn't be sweeping floors." Yeah. You're, you're much too important. I was and I was also lucky when I first came here in that I got a job. Uh, I didn't even start the application process. I was headhunted <clears throat> into running a project for teenagers, for young, young kids and teenagers, uh, mm. a project to activate them in their after-school hours and kind of build a bridge of communication between the school and the family. Um. And luckily, I got that based on my previous job experience, not because of any education that I had, but because of the practical experience I had at the job. And I was so fortunate because that normally does not happen here in Norway. Like we said, they want to see the papers. They want to see that diploma, that that master's, that dissertation and all that before they before they give you any kind of a job. I was lucky to be able to bypass that. I, I think you and I were both lucky yeah. in that sense. I see so many others who suffer. A lot of us are struggling. Who struggle, yeah. send out tons of applications. There's and people, there ain't nothing yeah, out there. Yeah, there's people who, uh, Americans here, who have that education, some of them with a master's degree, and um, they either have no job or they have a job that is drastically under their level of, uh, of education. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a weird situation. I um, back in back in the Bronx again. I went to one of the most specialized high schools 
in the world, the Bronx High School of Science. My high school alone has produced eight Nobel Prize winners. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and yet they were comparing that to Ungdom School here in Norway. Like just a regular high school, yeah. Not yeah. even a regular high school, but a junior high. Junior here. high, yeah. Uh, and and that that was that's so ridiculous. It is. It's very ridiculous. Um. So, so I was lucky. Once I did get a job here that matched what I could do. Okay. People took a chance on me, and that was Oslo Commune, the municipality in Oslo, because they were changing. Uh, they were working on changing an institution for kids from who were placed in an institution because they couldn't live at home, and they were going to change. And Michael, let me just interrupt you. Something is tapping in the background. On that's my knee. Oh, that's your knee. Oh, yeah, I shake a little bit. Okay, side effect of some of my medicines. Okay, yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah. so Oslo. I put my leg up. Uh, Oslo um, took a chance on me and hired me to change this institution from a usual institution to one that would work with teenagers with alcohol and chemical problems. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I was leader of this institution and changed the whole therapeutic philosophy, trained staff, Brought in people from Oslo, uh, did lots of training, got some wonderful feedback told by an employee, oh, you're so inspiring, even though my Norwegian was still not so good. Well, it was a lot better than from the beginning. Yeah, but still and, more Bronx than Norwegian. And so I, uh, I did that. Unfortunately, uh, I had to work 150% of the time. And too much of the time I had, the institution was an hour from my home. Okay. And yeah. Oslo is two hours from my home. So there were several days a week. I was spending four hours in the car. Because you live up in between, somewhere in between Lillehammer and Oslo, correct? Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's a heck of a drive. Of, just south of Jurvik. That's a, that's a heck of a drive. It is, and uh, over a mountain, over a big mountain, too. Uh, and Not a lot of fun in the wintertime, I would imagine. Not a lot of fun. And at the time I took the job, I was already suffering from kidney failure. Wow. Uh, so four hours in the car with bad kidneys was not so great. So eventually, after a year, I said, no, I have to go back to my other job that I had taken leave from to run this institution um, because I had to reduce the stress on my body. Right. Soon wow, after kidney, I, kidney failure. Oh. Soon after I, uh, oh, they found no reason for the kidney failure. Uh, I have had diabetes since 87. But isn't di can't can't diabetes lead to kidney failure? Yes, yes. But they took a biopsy of the kidneys and they couldn't find a, a a real reason for it. But at that time, did you know? Did they know that you had diabetes? I I found that out shortly after my second son was born in eighty seven. Okay, 
So uh, I've been living with it, controlling it with diet and exercise, mm. uh, some some pills, but no insulin or anything. Good, good. So when I returned to the to my old job shortly after that, I was called in to get a transplant because they wanted to do the transplant before I had need to go on dialysis. Okay. And here in Norway, that's considered a benefit to society if you get a transplant. And they tell how, how so? What do you what do you mean by that? Dialysis costs an awful lot of money. I see. So they're thinking in a, in a monetary sense, it's better to have in a, a transplant. Sense, it was better if I went through that and survived that than being on dialysis two you, or three times a week. Do you regret having a transplant? Would you rather have tried dialysis? No, dialysis would have been very destructive to me. Okay. And you have to be hooked up to a machine two yeah. or three times a week. Yeah, your life stops. Hours, and, and that would have changed my life. Yeah, yeah. And as I said at my first son's wedding, how thankful I was to my son because it was decided he would donate his kidney to me. And I was thankful. I, excuse me, hello. But I was thankful that he was able to give me his kidney so I was able to be there at his wedding and enjoy that with him. Wow. That's, that's just beautiful. It, uh, how old was he when he, how old was he when he uh, donated his kidney? Uh, let's see. Uh, he was in his twenties. He was the oldest of my children. Even my wife was a good match for me. Okay. And she could have donated. Yeah. But who wants an old lady's kidney? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have other body parts of a woman. A kidney, she can keep that one. <laughs> so, That's terrible. A couple of dirty so old men here. He's now he's now given me two beautiful granddaughters. Yeah. That I've been able to share with him, as well as being at his wedding. And now, has uh, he had any? Has he had any? I don't know um, side effects or impairments due to the kidney transplant, or has everything been fine with him? Because day, day after the transplant, I was up and hopping and dancing. I had tons of energy. Yeah, he was laying in bed, agonizing. Mm. I said, didn't you listen to the nurse? You're connected to a morphine pump. If you have pain, you give yourself a shot. Uh, Man, I didn't think I needed that, he said. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so the next day, he took so much morphine that he got really sick. Oh, gosh. <laughs> After six weeks, he was totally perfect. Okay, and no problems since then? No problems. The only thing, he had to give up his dream of one day being a fighter pilot. Because okay. you can't be a fighter pilot with one kidney. I see, I see. Uh, but otherwise, he's had no problems. And uh, me, I'm on medicine for the rest of my life. That sometimes means I shake a little bit, especially with my hands. My signature is, has almost become a doctor's signature. Oh, <laughs> uh, my hand shakes so much from one of my immune suppressants that I have to take. So, so that kidney transplant, you know, in, in, in some instances, people get, get a new kidney and 
it solves all their problems. But since then, you've had a whole series of other operations. Now, is this because something went wrong with that initial transplant, or is two, or is this just totally different, unrelated health issues? Unrelated, okay. mostly. Uh, the kidney transplant has been successful. One at one point, I did have some rejection issues. Okay, uh, but they increased my meds. And now they've reduced my medicines again. Okay. Uh, but before I could get the kidney operation, I had to be in very good shape physically and mentally. And so yeah, don't they have a, they have requirements about body fat percentage and all that kind of stuff? Before, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big man, but I just made it. I just made the limit, uh, and uh, I had to go into the big hospital in Oslo and check my heart, and the cardiologist said, you've got no symptoms, no problems. We don't need to do all the tests. Let's just do one little test. Yeah. And the next day, the cardiologist comes into me, oi, ufta. Uh, the one test shows you have no problems now, but you will develop problems. So before the transplant, we better go in and do a triple bypass on you. Good Lord. This has gone from a kidney issue, uh, diabetes and whatnot, to a triple bypass. Yeah. Uh, totally out of the blue. No symptoms, yeah. nothing. Uh, oh. But eventually I would develop something. So, uh, so that was a year of recovery from that operation that now, I missed. Now, <clears throat> the triple bypass and and the the the, the kidney issue. Is there anything that are, are we talking about something that was hereditary, or is this something, or, or was it because of lifestyle Di choices, or what 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 do they what do they think there? Diabetes is hereditary. Yeah. I, my grandfather, an aunt and an uncle on my maternal side, uh, all have had diabetes and have also died from diabetes. Uh -huh. uh, lifestyle plays a part in it, of course. Yeah. I could have taken better care of myself. Okay. Um, but... Um, but there is a hereditary element to diabetes, as, right. as people will usually know. Uh, See, because I'm thinking people, I'm thinking people can learn something by from hearing you talk about this on, on things that they can do to possibly avoid. You know, there's there's a lot of people who are down that path by making, <clears throat> and excuse me, because I'm not trying to point out any lifestyle flaws that you oh, have. Oh, it's not personal defect, but, but it is a little. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, there are some people who, who, who are, how do I put it? Who are too young to have some of the medical or health issues that they have. And that is because of their poor lifestyle choices. So I think it can be good for those people to hear you who have been through, you know, a kidney transplant, you know, a triple bypass, maybe some more things that we haven't even mentioned yet. And maybe they can start to think, okay, I can do things a little bit different now to avoid that. That's why I'm kind of digging in that a little bit. Yeah. I think I've passed that down to my own children. Okay. Yep. My own children are fit and in good shape. 
I have a son who's a gymnast who's very strict with what he eats and, okay. and so forth. Uh, and, and they are quite aware good, good. Of, of the situation. Right. So I think that they've learned from their father. Uh, and yes, I have, I have no problems talking about it. And I do speak with young people that has been my professional life working with young people. And uh, I think it's important for people to be aware. Yeah, because young people, young sorry to interrupt, young people think they're they're invincible. And that's the fear I have with what we're going through now with this pandemic. These ones who think they're invincible who go out and do all these stupid things and hang out with each other uh, without realizing how it can affect them later on in their life. Yeah, you know, I don't think anybody should, um, you hear a lot of people, most of them on the right, who um, <clears throat> kind of berate people who are being careful. And these people on the right will blow it up into the extreme and say that you're living in fear. I don't call it living in fear if you're being careful. I don't call that living in fear if you're concerned about your health and the health of others. That's just being considerate. That's just being you know, hip to, you know, aware to what's going on. That's not living in fear. That's living smart. <laughs> that's, that's living smart. Totally, totally agree with you, John. And it's, it's, for me, it's revolting to see these people who are marching around with automatic rifles, wanting their freedom to go to Fuddruckers. Uh, <laughs> Fuddruckers, isn't that a neighborhood in the Bronx? <laughs> no, 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 no. We have a different term for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, but it is very scary, uh, and and I hope young people can learn something from that. It's a, it's a sad thing to see these people. I mean, I get it. You get cabin fever, <clears throat> you're, you're hurting financially, uh, you want to get back to work. I think Governor Cuomo of New York said it very, very uh, succinctly and very clearly. Uh, he said to, to, to equate financial trouble, uh, problems with the economy, to equate that against the alternative, which is potential death, <laughs> is, is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Um, of course you want to open the economy, you want to send people back to work, but you also want to keep people from dying unnecessarily, you know, because this thing can be thwarted. We can, we can turn down the level of impact of this thing if we're just smart. And that doesn't mean we're living in fear. We're just trying to be smart. And Governor Cuomo called it his Matilda rule. He named it after his mother because he wants to protect his mother from getting sick because he still wants his mother to be with him. And that's how we have to think. Uh, I myself have not, except for some time recently in the hospital, have not seen another human face besides my wife for the last two months. I've also uh, been, I've also been pretty much indoors uh, and uh, only seeing my family since the 10th of March. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm afraid to go out, uh, and and I was extremely afraid when I was in the hospital recently because in April 
I got very sick and they rushed me in the ambulance to the hospital and they tested me right away for COVID-19 and they were all gowned and masks and gloves and yeah. visors yeah. and and then I tested negative. So I said, okay, we'll take off all our protective gear. Oh, good and, and I I was paranoid that I was going to go into the hospital without COVID and come out being infected with by COVID, someone yeah. who had no symptoms. It just and seems odd. That, all the doctors. And what, what was their response? Because to me, that seems odd and slightly, more than slightly irresponsible that they would take off all of their protective gear just because you tested negative. What was their response? Their response was that it orders from up on high. They pass the buck to the people up here. We have to save all our stuff for people in case there are more sick people. Uh, I said, yes, but in the meantime, <laughs> I can catch this. And if I catch it, I most likely will die. And even the people who came to take my blood come in, no masks, no gloves, wow. nurses. Uh, I wonder if that's changed now, though. Can you can so. you can you get sick again, please, and go in and test it out? See if they. <laughs> John, I have had more time in the hospital than in my home these last fifteen years. Yeah, you please been through don't a wish lot. that upon me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you have been through a lot. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of medical procedures you've been through. We're talking about around thirty six operations Amazing. or procedures. Uh, in the last 15 years. How do you keep your humor up? Because you seem to be, you seem to be very happy. You have a sense of humor that shows constantly. How do you, how do you do that? Where, how, how do you, how have you managed to stave off the bitterness? Humor has always been an important part of my life, especially in my work. Uh, I, in my work, I use humor all the time. Uh, I have been posting an awful lot of humorous things in different Facebook groups. Yes, you have. Trying to keep it up. However, as with most comedians, many comedians have dealt with depression. Absolutely. I have not what we call clinical depression. No. But I have what we call melancholy depression. And Tell us what that is. And I, it's where it's not based on a situation and just uh, because of things that are going on in your life. It's not as heavy that can be treated with drugs. Uh, I've been through a lot. People tell me I'm very strong. I don't feel strong all the time. And there are times I get really down. Uh, just this past January, I was extremely down and finally decided to go to my doctor and say, I think I need to speak with someone. Okay. And he's always been reluctant to, to send me to somebody because he's known me all the time I've been in Norway. We were colleagues at my first job here. Uh -huh. He, I was psych psychologically responsible. He was medically responsible. And he knows that I 
uh oh, Yantelovin here, Yantelovin. Uh, but I'm a lot better than most of the Norwegian psychologists around here <laughs> who are young and just out of school. Uh, but he did refer me to a psychiatrist this time. Okay. And then I got a letter from a psychiatrist. She had no time for me. Fully booked. So, so I've got to cope on my own. And as my doctor says, you know what to do. And I do know what to do. So I have my coping mechanisms. And one of them is Yuma. You you do post some incredibly <laughs> funny and, and insightful things. You know, they're, they're insightful. In other words, they make you think, but they're coded in humor. Um, have you ever... Have you ever have you ever done any stand up or have you ever written? Are you crazy? Yes, yes. Who, who would who would be a stand up comedian in these, these oh, days? Who, who would who would do that? <clears throat> Actually, I do have a nephew who's a stand up comic who has even heard of this American guy John Allen brother. Uh, Tor Torbjorn Melby is his name. I don't know if oh, you yeah. know him. Of course. Uh, he, uh, he's he been doing a bunch of stand-up lately. He's my nephew. We, we, just, we just participated in a, in a YouTube quiz together yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, so uh, in, in college, people thought I should be an actor. So I took a theater course in acting, and I got a C. <laughs> so I guess I wasn't cut out to be an actor. Uh, but a question I often ask my clients, yeah. in the story of your life, who do you want, in the film of your life, who do you want to play you? Who do you want to star as you in the story of your life? Denzel Washington. I figured that would be yours. <laughs> and And my reply always has been, Robin Williams. Ah, yes. Uh, One of my because, favorite actors ever. That man. Yeah. Because a lot of my therapy that I do is very instinctual, just like his comedy it was, was very so instinctual. On the fly, yeah. And uh, I don't know exactly why I do some of the things I do when I'm in therapy with clients. I love having students, young psychologists and therapists with me because afterwards they say, why did you say that? Uh, I said, oh, now I got to think about why I did that. Uh, it just comes and natural. That's a learning experience for myself, yeah, yeah, as well as for them. I see. Uh, uh, by, by the way, by the way, I I do know who uh, Torbjorn Melby is. I, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know that was your nephew. Yeah, if you say him, you can you can say. Uh, but if this podcast makes it on air, he'll probably be one of them that will be listening to this. Oh, of course, and, it's going to make uh, it on air. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. I don't know. I can still say a lot of dirty things later on, and you <laughs> always clean it up. You know, I, I, when, I think when someone is is expressing themselves through comedy, especially through stand up com comedy, I believe that it should be unfiltered. So if you cuss, you cuss. If you talk dirty, uh, you know, with sexual undertones, then so be it. Uh, Comedy, I believe, has to come from the heart. It cannot be an act, so to speak. There has to be a large element of you, of the of the comic, in that uh, stand-up comedy that they're presenting. 
and and I believe that's also true when you go into a therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. You have to be real. And there are too many psychologists out there who learn in school Reading, that you have to have yep. a distance and you have to say, uh-huh, what did you think then? And what did you feel? And so forth. And I don't do that bullshit. Yeah. Uh, if I see something, I say it. Now, and, uh- how how has that served you well, or how has that been a burden for you in Norway to speak your mind when it comes to speaking your mind? I would imagine it's been both a burden and you know with me with my knowledge of the Norwegian people being married to this dynamic uh, Samisk uh, Sami woman. Uh, I know how Norwegians experience straightforwardness. Sometimes it's an asset, but sometimes it's quite the opposite. What can you tell me about that? In my first job, I would, again, my Norwegian was terrible. I could just string words together. Yeah. I had no grammar. Preposition, prepositions were, are still <laughs> terrible to this day. And, uh, and I would always say, well, why can't we do this? Yeah. And the first lesson I learned in Norway was TTT. Ting ta tea. Things take time. Yeah. And I was told, you have to stop thinking American. You're in Norway now. Yeah. And I said, why? Why not think a different way? But we've always done it this way. And every time I hear that, I explode. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's been hard because I feel... Because I speak Norwegian with a Bronx accent, I don't get the respect that I get because they hear me speaking. Many people, especially older Norwegians, they turn off inside them uh, and they say, well, he's not speaking real Norwegian. Why should we listen to him? Uh, I once had a meeting with, with at a school with a boy who was going to go to Vitteron school, high school. Yeah. And he he had some difficulties. And midway through the meeting, his mother turned to, to the other people in the meeting and said, can someone tell me what that man is saying? I don't understand what he's saying. Uh. And her son turned to his mother and said, keep quiet, mom. I know exactly what he's saying. And and young people especially seem to be able to understand. They're exposed to so much English. So yeah, they yeah. realize I speak Norwegian with this Bronx accent, not grammatically correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I asked one, of the, one student I worked with, I was hoping to work until I was 70 years old. Uh, do you think kids will talk with me when I'm 70? A kid said, Michael, no problem. They'll be talking with you when you're 150 years old. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it has been depressing at times because I have struggled constantly to feel that I get respect. My I colleagues who know me, who have seen me, who see what I can do, who trust in my knowledge and my experience, and my competence, uh, they understand. 
but too many do not. And it has been a fight much of the time. And that's where I need to keep my humor up and just accept, ah, they're just fucking Norwegians. Screw them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and keep trying. So I keep, but, but how, how much, how much of that is, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. <clears throat> Yo, uh, Satan. <laughs> uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Not the devil himself, but the devil's advocate. <laughs> um, how much of that dilemma can be placed on the Norwegian society? Oh yeah, they're just Norwegians. How much of it can be put on them and how much of it can be put on the individual's inability to adapt to a new situation? Now there's the devil's advocate. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I think hear, you've I done hear. anything wrong, but as an outside, an outsider would hear what you just said and they would maybe present that question to you. How much is how much is that on you? How much is that you not being able to adapt? And how much is it the Norwegian society being rigid and exclusionary? First off, the Norwegian society is very rigid. Absolutely. Uh, I just had a conversation with my wife about that this morning. I live in a farm community. My great-great-grandchildren if they lived here, would still be known as the Americans. Uh, and this is a very close-knit society that I have very few friends, even though I'm a very social person. Um, I have tried to adapt, but I also have learned in the course of my life and this is both here and in White Bread, Minnesota, where I worked most of my professional time, that I am the type of person that gets a reaction from people. Yeah. And some people think, hey, this guy is really good. Others think, hey, this guy is an idiot. And very few are neutral about me. Yeah. So I've learned to accept that. I've had good things happen to me in the States. I've had bad things happen in the States. I've had good things happen to me in Norway. I've had bad things happen to me in Norway. At times, I do feel I have this black cloud that follows me around because I, I've lost jobs that I should never have lost. Uh, for very silly reasons. Okay, silly reasons such as? Uh, such as I was leading a, a day institution for kids in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the week before I got fired, my boss confided with me about her love life, and... <laughs> And the problem with her boyfriend who was living on the coast and she was in Minnesota and so forth. And then the next thing I knew, I got fired. <laughs> uh, I was a threat because I could get her to speak emotionally with me. Right. And, and she felt weak and so forth. Uh, I've had that happen to me. I, I developed a treatment program 
in a psychiatric hospital in Minnesota took in adolescent sexual offenders from the whole country in Canada. I planned it. I supervised it. I did the family therapy. uh, And the consultants came in, and they decided we had to cut costs. And the best thing way to cut costs was to get rid of the highest paid person there. And that was you. Yeah. The guy who put it all together. Yeah. So they had a little security guard who was going to escort me out of the building because I might have harmed these boys who I've been pouring my heart and soul into. Uh, so, so do you think that, do you think in, in situations like that, there is an overblown sense of you being a threat because of your knowledge or do you think there's an anti-Semitic tone undertone to it? I think I'm more of a threat than anti-Semitic. Uh-huh. I, I wouldn't say these job losses were because I, I was a Jew. Okay. But if you want to talk about anti-Semitism, uh, well, I'm sure you've ex- I'm sure you've experienced it a time or two up through the up through uh, the once years. or twice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the Bronx, not so not so much, but. Uh, uh, I went to an Orthodox synagogue. I was bar mitzvahed in an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not a true believer. No. Uh, and that's caused internal problems within my family, which, yeah, I guess I'd be willing to talk about if you'd like. But, um, but here in Norway... Once in one of the Americans in Norway groups, there was talk about anti-Semitism. And I related an episode uh, that I experienced here. Yeah. And a friend of mine worked at the local golf course. He was an American that they brought over to teach them golf. (laughs) And he was working with a neighbor to my sister-in-law. And they... The neighbor who I drove by his house whenever I visited my sister-in-law started talking about me, started calling me the fat Jew. To your face? Not to my face, to, to my friend's face. Okay, yeah. My friend threatened to punch him in the face if he kept talking like that. And my friend reported that to me. I got freaked out. Are people talking about me? Who knows that I'm Jewish? I went where I was working into school the you, next let day. Let me just ask you, were, you, were, you, yeah. were, you weren't trying to keep it a secret, were you? I wasn't trying to keep it a secret. You were, and uh, you were so just I went into my, my workplace and I asked uh, the advisor at the school that I worked closely with, I said, are people talking about me in the community? That I'm Jewish? Is, is there, you know, I know this area, they were, they were farmers during the Second World War to keep their farms. They say they had to join the Nazi party. You know, I, I somewhat accepted that. I'm not totally sure. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, they, um, so I asked my friend who's, who knew me for several years, I coached his son in basketball, and he said, to me, Michael, are you Jewish? Uh, he had no idea. Uh, it's not that I go around with the Star of David on my no. on my sleeve. Uh, 
but ignorance is a very frightening thing. Absolutely. It's, it's something I've been involved with even back in Minnesota. In Minnesota, my wife and I were members of a group called Mixed Doubles. A reform rabbi had a synagogue in St. Paul, Minnesota, that tried to reach out to intermarried couples. We were members in this group. For a while, we were chairpersons of the group. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, there's a book written by a rabbi, a priest, and a minister uh, called Happily Intermarried, the story of intermarried couples. And one chapter is called Leave and Michael, oh. and it's us. Yes. Never bought the book, but it's out there on Amazon. You can buy it for a dollar. Uh, and, uh, and that did cause some problems within my family. But um, What's the name of that book again? Happily intermarried, happily inter inter and it's uh and it's uh available on Amazon. You said, yeah, it's 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 old now. You know, this was back in the in the eighties yeah. and so forth. You know, when you were a pup. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, so what I've done, and we did this mixed doubles. We learned how to create our own rituals. We had a support group. We had people who were really struggling with their families. Uh, and then the synagogue had been asked by someone, would someone maybe be able, by a Catholic church, would someone be able to do a Passover meal oh. and teach us a little bit about it? So for two years running, I did Passover meals at, uh, at going through the ritual in my own way at uh, at this Catholic church. And since we've been in Norway, I have tried, when I have my health, to invite local people to come in to see the rituals that we go through. Yeah. To be a guest, I have to entice them by saying, during the meal we get four cups of wine. <laughs> uh, and that, that always is a good 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 selling point. But we go through it in a much more humanistic way. I see. Which is more that I believe. I, I was see. a part of a group of humanistic Jews in Minnesota. And one year we had my wife's book group and included the local priest and his wife. We had like 15 people here going through eating some of the traditional food, foods that I made myself. And going through the process uh, because it's ignorance yeah, that and causes so much of the problem. Absolutely, and and by inviting them into your home, that I think that is going to break down. That would break down a lot of that. It, well, you know, it's going to show them that maybe some of their preconceptions that they had are just not accurate. The, there is a ritual in the Passover seder. Seder is a Hebrew word that means the order of the meal. And there is a ritual where you open the door to allow Elijah the prophet to come in and so forth. But where that came from was back in the Middle Ages when Jews were being killed because there were rumors that they were slaughtering Christian babies to make 
to drain their blood to make matzah. Yeah. And they opened the door to say, nothing's going on here. Come in and see. Okay, so I that's where that tradition has come from. That's oh, where it's okay. from. I, I've, I've learned all these things, <laughs> and I talk about these things, and I try to get people to discuss. You know, I discuss, we have an egg on the table. Yeah. And this happens around Easter time. Why do you have eggs at Easter time? Could it be the early Christians who were Jewish had the egg, and therefore they continued having the egg? Because many of the ancient religious myths have all been just adopted to the individual religions. So Christians, and the people here are Christians, have a sense because they know of Jesus' Last Supper, yeah, and that was a that was a Passover meal. See? So we go through. Why do they have it confirmation that little wafer? Well, could it be the matzah, the unleavened bread? Yeah. Uh, see, no, I, I believe. See, I believe in uh, kind of like what you're talking about. You know, dialogue, discussion, uh, something so simple as inviting someone into the home. Uh, I believe in doing those things to break down those barriers that certain preconceived notions have built up over time. I'm not trying to dig up, you know, any instances of anti-Semitism or racism where there is none, but I do believe that where there are uh, pockets of racism or incidences of racism, I do believe in talking about it, expose it, and that's going to break down the barrier. I've been accused of being an agitator, being, oh. Of being too focused, someone tried Join to tell I'm too fo too focused on racism. I'm not focused on racism. I'm focused on dialogue, which hopefully will lead to getting rid of racism. A, a, a big difference between the American and Norwegian school system is mm -hmm. religion is a required subject here. Yeah. So I have offered myself to local schools when they are discussing religion, depending upon the time of year, I will go in and talk about religion. I would talk cool. about being Jewish. Cool. I, if it's in December, I bring in my Hanukkah dreidels and ah. I spin the dreidel and I teach them songs and I talk about it. I I actually did. Oh, this is embarrassing. Sorry, David. I'm going to mention this, but I the, the the priest who taught religion at the high school here, he asked me to come in and talk, and people ask questions, and uh, I had to explain. I went into my son's class, and I talked with them that I had a bris for both of my sons. I had a circumcision of my sons while my poor son was in the class uh, and turning several different shades. Uh, it's like, Dad, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Um, but, uh, but I explained why and I, and, I, and I talk. So again, like you, ignorance is the biggest yeah. tool, is the worst thing possible yeah. because that brings fear and fear can bring anger and hate and mistrust of other people. And I try to say, I bleed just like everyone else. Yeah. I, I'm just a person. 
I was brought up with different beliefs. Well, I think we need more work like that. We need more people out there who are not afraid to talk about these kind of things. These things are such a taboo subject. And if you are one who, who, who talks about it uh, in order to inform and educate and hopefully change uh, people's opinions, you get labeled as an agitator. You get labeled as someone who is too focused on it. That happens a I lot. Don't know, I, I don't know if I've been called an agitator for, for going into the schools and so forth. I think, especially with the older kids, but even with the young kids, uh, I will bring in things for them to draw, you know, the young kids, so they get to draw the menorah for Hanukkah. Mm. And, and I tell the story of the different nights and why we celebrated and oil that burned and and for me, uh, these are myths. These, you know, this, that's very. You adopt your myths and you call them facts, but sure, sure. Uh, but I. Uh, so being, I think it's important to, for people to know that. So I also bring in foods for them to taste. Yeah. So they get to taste some of the special foods. So we'll make uh, potato pancakes, potato potato latkes. At Hanukkah time, uh, so they get to eat that sometimes. That my I kids, my kids made pa uh, pancakes for me. This not potato pancakes, but just regular American pancakes. American pancakes. So if, I'm, if you hear me struggling to breathe, it's because I ate like three times a uh, <laughs> the wise and recommended amount of, of pancakes <laughs> for one meal. Did you have syrup on them? Syrup on it. You can go to Sweden and buy. I can't remember the brand, but it's a it's yeah. a regular American brand of pancake mix uh, and American yeah. syrup. So yeah. every from time to time we go to Sweden and stock up on that. Sweden's oh closed now, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no border crossing for me. Yeah, I make my own, and i i have i have I have smuggled in some log cabin and some maple, some real maple syrup. Yeah. I I had a year making maple syrup in the course of my life. I worked in Vermont. You know what? One of my favorite, one of my best and most happiest uh, school experiences that I can remember. I believe we were in fourth or fifth grade and we took a trip to a, um, it's a farm in Ohio. They're called Hale Farm. I believe it is still a working farm to this day. But back then, you could go, um, they made their own syrup and they had their own pancake recipe. So we went there. The whole class went there and they made fresh maple syrup for us from those good old Ohio maple trees. And uh, wow. well, Well, for me, as a Bronx boy, I had this one year where I was going out and drilling holes in trees and hanging buckets on the trees to gather the sap. Yeah. And this was a therapeutic work community, which took psychiatric patients away from the backwoods of hospitals and put them to work with usual vomiting usual people common yeah. people uh <laughs> and and we worked with them so we'd be up on snowshoes drilling holes into the trees hanging buckets and when i left <clears throat> when i left the place i decided to do a quiz show for the for the place and the final jeopardy answer was something like 461 and the question was, 
how many gallons of syrup had we made that year? Oh, wow. Since it takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup, we collected a lot, a lot of sap. And did you guys? We were very sappy. Did you guys sell it to finance part of the? We sold it. We sold some of the vegetables, some of our eggs from our chickens. Uh, but where, where we, was this? This wasn't right, right smack in the middle of the Bronx, now was it? No, this was again. I've lived many places. This was in a small town in in Vermont called Cuttingsville, Vermont. Population one hundred. Yes. And uh, and then we had a ranch that was on towards the top of a hill. There was a beautiful lake called Spring Lake at the top of the hill, but halfway up there was Spring Lake Ranch, and we took these people out of the psychiatric hospitals and did some really good stuff with them. Fresh air and a little physical Fresh activity, air, working, and it it's That's still good going. It's been it's been going since like the thirties, nineteen thirties. It's still running, still running to this day. Still running to this day. I went there for three months and stayed a year. Wow! And if you ever go there, John, in Cuttingsville, Vermont, we used to play basketball with the villagers every Friday night. And if you go there and you go to the gym, up on up on top of the gym, when I left, they retired my number. Ah, yes. And my number 19 for Willis Reed at the time, New York Knicks, uh, and the Wex, W-E-X, <laughs> the Wex. is hanging from the rafters in the gym. <laughs> the Wex. At Spring Lake Ranch. Uh, you know... Uh, let me let me ask you something about see see I, I've I've been to Vermont uh, as a truck driver I drove through there quite quite often I was a truck driver for a year year and a half after my time in the U S Marines um, and as a truck driver I also drove from time to time quite often actually through New York City and st would stop and make deliveries uh, very often in Brooklyn and I can't remember was it Queens or the Bronx I don't remember. But uh, just we different. were stolen the truck in the Bronx. <laughs> well, well, well here, here's what I'm getting to. Now, I a, a lot of people know about New York from a tourist point of view. I've never been to New York as a tourist. I've been to the airports. You, most often when I'm traveling from Norway back home to Ohio, I'll come into uh, LaGuardia or, or maybe one time at... Um, yeah, one of the other New York area uh, airports. That's all I know about New York besides the time I was going through there as a truck driver. And one thing that fascinated me about New York people, and again, I can't quite remember where, what, where I, I know, I know I was very often in Brooklyn and then other, whether it was Queens or the Bronx after that, I don't know. But one thing that surprised me or I thought was interesting about the people, they seem to be a polarized, um, tribe two polarized tribes of people there there were the new yorkers who were extremely jovial and friendly and then there were the new yorkers who were extremely rude and short-tempered and just don't have time for you uh, i can remember a couple of times where i would stop the truck roll down the window to ask somebody for directions because this this was back in the early days of gps so as sometimes the directions i got were pretty pretty shady so i would have to ask local people where i was where i needed to go i can remember rolling down that window and before i could even formulate the question 
I would get, hey, get out of here, da, 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 you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, welcome to New York. What is that thing? People say it seems to be polarized. You're, they're either extremely friendly or they're very short-tempered, rude, get out of my face. What, what can you tell me about that? I think New York people are very different than most people in America. Growing up in the Bronx. Did you steal trucks in the Bronx? No, 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 no. <laughs> I was a good boy. Come on. I was the valedictorian of my sixth grade graduating class. Come on. Yeah, but six, <laughs> from, from sixth grade to 12th grade, that's a lot of deterioration that can happen. So. Well, I, I do have Vito and Tony who I can always yeah, call Back upon. to them. Back to them. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I think for many people, New York has a very bad rap. It does. Uh, I think most of us in New York are very friendly and helpful. I think there are some people who basically don't give a shit about others, uh, but I find that everywhere I go. Uh, it's just that New York is a bigger city, so you're going to see more, more of the friendlies, but more of the rules. Yeah. But I've always, you know, I, I can remember... I can remember there was a big Jehovah's Witness convention at Yankee Stadium, and I was in the subway <laughs> coming home, and there was a guy. He he was from France. He forgive me that forgive France. me that I laughed. The stand-up comedian in me sees that that is the beginning of a good joke. There well, was a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses. In the yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so he was kind of lost in the subway. Yeah, and here I was. I had three years of high school French. Yeah. And with my three years of high school French, I went up to him and say, I, I, I said, bonjour. And then I lost my French. <laughs> so he, he showed me where he wanted to go. So with my three wonderful years of French with a Bronx accent, I said, come here, gesticulating constantly and, and then go down there <laughs> and and then you take number four train and that will get you to yankee stadium <laughs> um so this was a french jehovah's witness yeah french jehovah's witness i need to develop who, that into a bit for stand uh and uh so i couldn't <laughs> use much of my french uh and uh so I've always, and, and when I traveled, one of the things I, I, I did when I traveled, as I said, I stayed with many different people. Many of the people I stayed with were teachers. So I would go into schools. And I started doing that in Denmark, in Germany, in Norway, in, 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 in many places, because I always have been... I've always been, uh, kids are important to me. And for me, sure. that's the best way to learn about a country. So I would go in and I would talk about New York. Uh, I would talk about my hometown. Uh, and you had, for the, the most part, you had, for the most part, good experiences living in uh, the Bronx. I, I've been mugged. Uh, oh. I protected my baseball glove, but they did get some some change out of my pocket. Um, 
Now, is that just love is important. now is that just par for the course? I mean, is that uh, is there any trauma in that, or or is that did you look at that as okay? That's just life in the Bronx. Yeah, I think uh, I. I it didn't make you jaded. It didn't make we, you jaded we, against. We, we had gangs, but they weren't like the gangs of today. But you know, there were the the T Birds, oh, and uh, and and they were a, a gang we we were afraid of when I was younger. Uh, it wasn't quite like the Crips and the Bloods. No, uh, this is before those days. Yeah, and uh, so so no, I think. Uh, I think New York is basically a friendly people. Uh, I think there are idiots in every society. Sure, sure, absolutely. And uh, I don't think we're necessarily polarized. Uh, when I've been that was just my yeah, and again that was just my experience as a truck yeah. driver and the types of people that I ran into very yeah. briefly yeah. Well, as a, as a well, truck we, driver. We do have a thing about truck drivers. Okay, let's hear it. Maybe this <laughs> yeah. will explain something. Maybe this will explain something. <laughs> oh God! I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please, all you teamsters, I don't mean that. Uh, yeah, don't write to me. Don't do not write to me. Write to Michael. <laughs> some of my best friends have driven trucks, uh, but, uh, but no, I think we're 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 friendly and and I and New York is indeed still a huge part of me. Oh, I can't imagine. It has to do with identity. Uh, when when I traveled uh, and stayed in people's homes, you know, throughout Europe and so forth, uh, you were supposed to maybe leave a little gift, something about yourself. So I had bought a whole bunch of postcards of New York City sites. Uh, and I would write a little note on the back of the postcard and leave it in the homes right. uh, with a picture of the Statue of Liberty or fireworks or the Brooklyn Bridge. Hey, and, Mi Michael, can I ask you to hold on one second? I have yeah, to... I you got to deal with something. Yeah, just uh, give me one second. There's somebody that keeps Take sticking their head in. Give me, give me about 30 seconds. I'll be right back. Take two minutes. Okay. Okay. Here I am. That was about a minute, wasn't it? <laughs> the, the problems of, of working at home during the pandemic... I had to go back to my babies and say, okay, if you're going to make me breakfast, we have to do it at this time. And then, of course, they were delayed, so I had to call you up or send you a message and change the time again. So now these poor babies were just sticking their head in the, into my office door asking me how much longer because I guess they had something else planned for me. But yeah, uh, that tells I, you where I, my mindset is. I totally forgot it was my birthday today. I, I feel really bad about that. You're uh, supposed to I, be with your family on your birthday. No, I'm with my family. I'm yeah, I know you're stuck with your family. <laughs> now, you said understand. stuck. You said I, stuck with <laughs> but, uh, but But it is your birthday. You know, yeah, but you know, we I, we don't really... My, birthday, my birthday's in June. I won't have my family around me. Why not? There's something called COVID-19 out there. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, the distancing. Physical distancing. I'm high, high risk. Well, you know, I, um, when it comes to birthdays, you know, 
how do I put this? I mean, it's not like it's not an important day, but we don't make that big of a deal. Uh, my wife and I don't make a big deal out of our birthdays. When the kids have their birthdays, yeah, you know, they're going to have their, you know, their their friends are going to come over and they're going to have their little gathering and have their party and whatnot. But uh, for us, for myself and, and my wife, it's just, okay, yeah, that's, it's a birthday, yeah. My birthday changed on my 16th birthday. On my 16th birthday, my grandfather died. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that was many, many years ago. Uh, yeah, but I would imagine it put a totally different um, exactly. <laughs> meaning into it. Yeah, especially, yeah. especially for my mother, sure. her father, sure. who she was close to. Uh, so it was always the anniversary of his death coincided with my birthday. My she son... She met me at the bus stop when I had to take the bus home from high school, uh -huh. and there was a cake in the car, but we had to go over to my grandmother, because my grandfather had died. Wow. Uh, that's a little bit of a... It was a real bummer. Yeah, that's a little bit of a different birthday. I guess for, for me, <clears throat> um, I can feel it creeping up on me, because my son, who passed, he, he died on the 5th of November, uh, 2019, of the heroin overdose, as you know. And his birthday is coming up on May 18th. And I can just, I feel, I don't even know how to describe it. I can just feel something creeping up on me because his birthday is right around the corner. So that's... Um, and, and that's going to be interesting. That's going to be interesting to say and, that and he's... John, I can talk an awful lot, but when I reached out to you after you posted about your son, yeah, and, and thank you for that. Follow up on it. Uh, I also can 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 listen really well, and if there's anything I can do to help you with that, you'll get a reduced rate. Ah, be free. <laughs> uh, but uh, I I worked with a lot of grief issues. I've had lot, yeah. I've had courses about dealing with grief, yeah. especially for small kids. Um, but uh, well, thank you for that. I um, did appreciate. I very much appreciated you uh, reaching out. You sent a rather nice. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people did that, and uh, it helps. <clears throat> it helps the, yeah. the 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 smallest kind word uh i i feel it and i appreciate yeah. and i appreciate it it's not so as always that yeah thank you we don't thank have you. to do that on a podcast no 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 i although i have although i have spoken of my son's uh addiction problems and his passing on on uh on previous wow. podcast episodes because i'm i'm the kind of person i feel that it's important to speak out about it there's a therapeutic aspect for myself and I'm also in a mindset that says, do what you can to help others who may be in the same situation. And that means talking about it. That means putting words on the issue. I told you that before. I believe in speaking out about problems. You can't fix anything if you don't talk about it. And I think, especially in America, I don't really know much about the circumstances and statistics here in Norway, but I know our American brothers and sisters are you know, right in the middle of this, this, this craziness with, with opioids. And, uh, if I can say anything, uh, that someone might be able to identify with and possibly help them just by talking about it, that's what I do. And I think that's beautiful, John. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. Uh, 
Uh, I've worked with kids with with drug issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've I've worked with lots of different issues. Uh, But being able to talk about things, being able to share things is the most important thing. I think so. Uh, We... um, I was, I was just talking with a colleague, ex-colleague yesterday, and and all too often we try to find uh, we we face illogical problems. Kids hurting themselves, kids being hurt by their parents, yeah. kids using drugs. Yeah. For me, that's illogical, and we try to find logic in why that happened. My work with abuse victims, they always ask, why was I chosen to be understandable? And, and yeah, my brother has caught me. What did you say? Yeah, crazy uh-huh. stuff. All of a sudden, and, uh, totally subconscious. Yeah, but I just... But li- listen, Michael, this this is my birthday, and uh, not that I make a big deal of it, but I have two uh, beautiful half American, half Samus. Be with your family. They they uh, well, let's say it the way it should be. They need to be with me. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor babies. No. Um, this has been a good way for me to get to know. Uh, what kind of person you are. You've shared some of your background and, and what you've been through. I think it's, we can have a whole other episode. I, I, I really wanted to talk more with you about uh, family therapy and, and your your views on the group aspect versus the one-on-one aspect. I think that's fascinating stuff. Um, I'm more we're just, than willing to do that. We're going to have to as, save it for another episode, but that's... As well as I'd like to be able to talk a little bit about this peace organization that I kind of run here in Norway. Yeah. So let's do it again, but please, not on your birthday. <laughs> not on, your anniversary has passed now. That has passed, yes. <laughs> you got a jib-jab for that. Yes, I did. I don't know if you've seen your jib-jab for your birthday, but you got one today from me okay i'll find that i didn't see that i had a i had a hard i had to make a hard choice whether it should be rick james or james brown (laughs) give me james Uh, brown please (laughs) uh that jib jab where you put in you put in snoopy's uh avatar picture because she doesn't put out any she's so smart she's so smart yeah she's very smart there are no photographs of her out there and she does that for security reasons she's a she's a psychiatric nurse with some some rather tough types uh at her at her unit there i've worked with many psychiatric nurses yeah i could probably i could probably do a show with her and we can talk uh shop i've been trying to get her on as a in air quotes a guest on my podcast Uh, we actually recorded an episode a while back but i never i never used it uh, do but, it when she has her mask on. <laughs> yeah. She can be the mask that guest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but John, I totally agree with you. Be with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can do this another time if you'd like. If I do, I, w- I do want to do that. Okay. I do want to have you on again as a guest. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to get because this. Because you've had Tiffany like 15,000 times. You know on. what? <laughs> Tiffany, that, that woman is like a sister to me. I love her to death. Um, we've had her over here twice, twice now. Yeah. 
the first episode I had with her was episode two, and we made dinner afterwards, and and she Does, met the family. She live in Porsgrudun or something? Yeah, she just takes a train up. I live I live just a few few minutes to walk from my house to the train station here oh, in Drummond. I know so she, exactly where that is. Yeah, yeah, I'm just a, about ten minute, ten five to ten minute walk. Again, I was in Drummond a lot with uh, my daughter at Donvik. Yeah, yeah, that is in fact. Um, well, that's a whole other story, but yeah, we are not too far from the train station. Okay. So when Tiffany came, when Tiffany came, she just took the train. I met her at the train station and and brought her here. So yeah. that's uh, okay. Stop. Stop. Freeze. <laughs> Freeze. Be with your children. Yes. Enjoy your birthday. I will. Uh, lots of good wishes for you on your birthday. Thank you. You're still a young man. Absolutely. Just. Just wait. Oh, wait a minute. You don't have much on top either. Hey, man, that's shade. That's shade, okay? That's, uh, yeah. but, that's the Michael uh, Jordan look there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but James Brown has a lot of hair on his head, so you'll get to see what it, what you look like. <laughs> okay, John. All right. Thanks for this time. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being a guest. And okay. uh, we're going to do this again. Uh, you can you can find Michael. You can find this episode uh, tomorrow morning. I'll have it uploaded by midnight tonight, so okay. you can wake up to this episode. Okay. You can hear you can hear how good you sound and how silly I sound. John, <laughs> don't work on it until your kids are asleep. Oh yeah, yeah. Have those, time with your kids. Those uh, yeah. This is this no from I'm here. A family therapist. Remember? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> I promote family health. No, I, I am very fortunate in that uh, Snoopy, my loving wife, she totally supports me in this podcast effort. She supports me with my music, with my stand-up, and above and beyond that, all of my time, almost 100% of my time other than that is spent with my family. I, I'm yeah. a very, I'm a fortunate man. I'm blessed beyond uh, what I deserve. So family, uh, family is where it is, man. Family is is most important to me. That's what makes these Corona times horrible for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Hang in there, my friend. Children. Yeah, well, I, I'm doing that. These times are going to pass. These times will pass eventually. I know. I know. Yeah. Okay, John. All right, man. Take Don't care spend of yourself. Your family. I will. Thank Bye. you. Take care. Yeah. Okay, everybody. A very loving man, Michael Wexler. And thank you all for being part of this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Bye, everybody. I'm coming home. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Yes, I am. I know.